0: Lastly, would you consider supporting this ministry? This is made possible by other people's generosity, and I'd love for you to pay it forward. Join us to reclaim the message and the movement of Jesus together. So would you consider giving to this ministry? I know that God is able to do immeasurably more through us when we come together. Thank you so much. God bless you and enjoy. Good morning, Mosaic. How are y'all doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. We are so glad to have you live stream, or if you're watching this or listening later, we're really glad you guys are here to Listen, we know some of you have been affected by Hurricane Ian, and we are praying for you. If there's anything we can do to help you out, please continue to let us know. This morning, though, so glad you guys are here. It's Sunny in Charlotte, and we are going to wrap what has been one of my favorite serieses, series I, series is... So far, and it's called, I Didn't Say That. I Didn't Say That. So we've done three weeks where we talked about um, let go and let God. God. Some of you were here that week, okay. How about this one? God will never give you more than you can handle. Last week, Pastor Naeem talked about our sin and the idea of how when we do something, we're like, ugh, I'm going to hell for that, right? We talked about all of these different things and we're wrapping out the series. We're ending the series today with a catchphrase that you maybe grew up with. It's one that I grew up with. It's one that I know well. And let's see if you know it. It is, hate the sin, love the sinner. Love the sinner. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Raise your hand if you grew up with that. I need to know who, I- oh, yes, okay. We got some people. live stream. drop a little hand emoji in there if you have heard this phrase. So here's the thing with these, this catchphrase theology that we've kind of been referring to, right? It all sounds so nice. It sounds good. Hate the sin, love the sinner. It sounds good, but some of these catchphrases and some of these words, they don't necessarily land or play out the way that we think they're going to. This one, for example, I think it means well. So if you've said it, if you still say it, maybe you just said it yesterday. I think you have good intentions. I think you mean well. I know I had good intentions when I thought this, but how it actually looked in my life was not actually loving It wasn't really loving. I didn't say this to anybody's face, but I thought it about everyone. (laughs) I was a goody-two-shoes. I was the oldest child. I did everything right. Everything. I did everything right. Because I took sin so seriously. That was why. I took sin so seriously that I was like, I'm just not going to do it. And so I didn't. But I thought this phrase for everybody, for the popular kids at school, right, for everybody. I was like, ugh. Hate the sin, love the sinner. What really it meant in my own life was, that's gross. What you're doing is like pretty despicable. I would never do that. I can't even imagine doing the things that you're doing. But because I am such a good Christian, I can overlook that and still love you. I can overlook how awful you are and how terrible you are. And I can still love you because I am a good Christian. Christian. It became all about me. And what it probably looks like more than loving the sinner was moral superiority. What it probably looks like more than loving the sinner was a self-righteousness. Because I'm going to tell you, in my mind, I wasn't loving them. I was actually asking and wondering, like, hey, God, if you take sin as seriously as I do, because apparently you don't, where's the consequence for these people? Where's the punishment Because I know if I do anything wrong, I get punished. And let me tell you all the things that these people are doing that are way worse than anything I've ever done. I could not see my own sin in this situation. I could not see my pride. I could not see my vengeful spirit. I could not see the condemnation in my heart when what I thought I was doing was hating the sin and then in love calling people out by telling them how bad they were. It did not come across as loving. Now, I don't know, maybe for you, you've been able to figure that out, and you've been able to manage these two things, but for me, every time I thought, hate the sin, love the sinner, I just created distance, and I created distance, and I created distance, and I created distance. And the problem is that it's really hard to keep the sin at a distance and try to bring the sinner close. So here's what we're going to do. How many of us love talking about sin? No one. Right, I know. It can be super uncomfortable. So we're going to get that out of the way. I don't want you to be distracted. So here's what we're going to do. Think about a sin that, you know, that that big one, right? The one that's already, it's in your mind. And what we're going to do on the count of three, we're just going to call it out. Ready? One, two. (laughs) I couldn't even get to two you guys already laughing. Good. I was like, if somebody jumps the gun and shouts this out, holy moly, that is going to be a joke gone So wrong. So I'm really glad that didn't happen. I'm really glad. But thank you for laughing. I'm glad you understand this is the tension, right? This is the problem. You get that we cannot actually separate the sin from the sinner. It doesn't work as well as this catchphrase would lead us to believe. Paul actually talks about this in Romans, Romans 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. I love this passage. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature, in my innate sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And we have moved from like Christian catchphrase theology to Dr. Seuss theology. (laughs) Because all I can hear here is what? Do. Everything is due. We do and we do not do, and we can't do what we want to do. And I have to read this passage over and over and over because I'm like, what are you actually (laughs) saying? What are you actually saying? And it's almost like Paul is saying, I'm two sides of the same coin. So I have to decide here's the sin, here's the sinner. Am I going to, what am I going to do today? Am I going to hate the sin, love the sinner? But the sin's still on the other side. Next day, next choice, what are we going to do? Oh, Twice in a row, look at that. Oh, love the sinner. But the sin is still back here. And it's almost like Paul is saying, sin is not something that I have or something that I do. It's something that I am. I am this coin. I am the sin and the sinner. And I cannot separate them. Listen, I understand this. I am one person at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I am a different person at 5 o'clock in the evening. 5 a.m., Kristen, so excited, ready for the day, gonna make good choices, gonna get up, I'm gonna be kind to people, I'm gonna only say words that don't require me to put money in a guilt jar, I'm gonna have salad and water for lunch, like I'm gonna do all the right things, right? 5 p.m., Kristen, has already done half of the things that I decided that I wasn't gonna do, and didn't do half of the things that I did set out to do. And no salad and water will be crossing my plate at 5 p.m. either. It's not happening. I am two different people, why? It's not because I changed my mind. It's not because somewhere in my day I was like, I'm gonna stop trying to decide to do these things that are good because they're not good anymore. No, it's almost as if our decisions don't always end up with action. I think that's what Paul is trying to say here. He's like, just because I make a decision doesn't mean it results in action. I choose to do good things and then I don't. And I choose not to do bad things, but then I do. And it feels as if I'm out of control. We are very connected to our sin. We cannot separate the sin from the sinner. And when Jesus talks about sin, he actually takes it to the next level. One of Jesus's first and I think most famous sermons or teachings is the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard about the Sermon on the Mount if you've been in church for a while. And at first glance, it seems super all over the place. It seems like Jesus, like, drops a topic, and then he just goes to the next topic and goes to the next topic, and it seems super disconnected. But if you read it all the way through, which we will not have time to do today, but it's in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. If you read it all the way through, we can see that there are some themes here. There are some themes that he has woven through. And the first one is that Jesus redefines sin. In almost every section of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said, but I say. Or the scriptures say, but I say. In almost every single topic, this is how he starts. Why? 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 It's almost like Jesus is saying, listen, before I tell you how to deal with other people's sin, I need you to know what sin actually is. So we're going to redefine it. Let's look at a couple examples. In Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, he says, "'You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment.'" If you call someone an idiot, Bible says idiot. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. He's like, listen, you want to judge murderers? Like, I get it. That's pretty messed up. And I'm not taking away from that. There should be judgment and consequence there. But when you're angry enough To understand why someone would want to do physical harm to somebody else, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. You're subjecting yourself to the same judgment. If you call someone a name, an idiot or something else, if you call someone a name, you are in danger of the same punishment. You know that eternal punishment that you're wishing on somebody else? You just put yourself in the same danger of the fires of hell. I might have put myself in the danger of the fire of hell on the way here this morning. Anybody else? (laughs) I've driven in the car with some of you. I know I'm not the only one. It's crazy, right? Hearing this would have been shocking at the time. It would have been so shocking. It's hard to believe now sometimes to go, how are these the same? Like, Jesus, how are these the same? Especially at the time, the law was so focused on outward things. Both sin and righteousness were based on what people could see with their eyes. A few verses later, he gives another example in verse 27. He says, you have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, <laughs> I'm sure that people are like, I'm sorry, what? Like what? How can this be true? You're telling me that if I have thoughts about a woman, if I have lustful thoughts, if I'm thinking these things, it is the same thing as if I actually physically do it? I can only imagine how Jesus was blowing people's minds. And I can't claim to know exactly what he was thinking, but I wonder if the point of being shocking, if the point of saying these things was his way of going, hey, 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 I know you think you're up here. I know you think you're morally superior, but you're actually not. I wonder if this is Jesus' way of putting everybody on the same level, on the same page. This is a way for us to stop justifying our behaviors and convincing ourselves that we are better than other people when we can start to see that our sins are no better or worse than somebody else's. And he wasn't taking away from these things. He wasn't taking away from murder and adultery and all of the other things that are listed to Scripture. It's like he's showing them, hey, there's so much more to it than all of the big ones, right? Don't we all have a list of, like, these are the big sins? And then, like, the little white lies don't count. We balance them out. Do you know how many sins in the Bible are unseen? I don't have a number for you. There's a lot of them. A lot of sins in the Bible are unseen. Scene. Let me just name a couple for you, because I wrote them down. See if any of these hit home. They're in alphabetical order, I just realized, because that's how I copied them from the list on the Internet. All right. <laughs> Anger. Bitterness. Conceit. Whoops. Desiring praise. Disobedience to parents. Evil thoughts. Fearfulness. Foolishness. Jealousy. Judging lying, pride, ungratefulness. All of these sins are listed in scripture and all of these sins are things that you cannot see with your eyes. So we have to somehow learn to see them a different way. Jesus is making a point all throughout this. He's redefining sin and saying, if you think that you're righteous because no one can see your sin, you are looking at your sin the wrong way. When we can learn to see other people's sin through the lens of our own, all of a sudden we realize we are the same. We are the same. You might struggle with something that I don't struggle with, but we are are the same. We are on the same page, and I no longer can be on a level up here where I'm putting myself above you. First, he redefines sin. The second theme we see in the Sermon on the Mount is relationship. There are about 20 recorded topics in the Sermon on the Mount if we go through the three chapters, and all of them, every single one of them, is addressed in the context of relationship. All of them. And you're like, some of them, that makes sense, right? Even when it comes to like giving money, the things we think about, oaths, go back and read it, every single one of them, this blew my mind. Jesus talks about in the context of relationship, either in relationship with other people or relationship with God. Every single one of them. <laughs> Which makes sense because if you think about it, how easy would it be to sin if you were to not sin? How easy would it be to not sin if you're the only person in the world? We sin, we know we sin in the context of relationships. If you were the only person, there's nobody for you to get mad at. There's nobody for you to call names in the car. There's nobody for you to be jealous of. There's nobody for you to lust after. There's nobody for us to murder. Like, it would be so easy if we were the only people, because sin happens in the context of relationship. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we see that sin exists in the context of relationship, and it must be addressed in the context of relationship. There's a really good example of this um, in scripture, and this is really interesting. This is why you have to read your footnotes, friends. This story was not actually found in the early manuscripts, but they added it in later. And this is the story that I'm going to get to it in just a second. I thought was like one of the most popular, at least growing up for me. This was a story that I was like, this is legit. I mean, it is legit. But to find out later that they added it in and they just kind of stuck it in the Bible kind of blew my mind. It's the story of the woman that was caught in adultery. And what's so crazy is I'm like, okay, why did they add this in here? It's just kind of stuck in John. It's just kind of chunked in the middle of John. And if you read, your Bible probably has italics or something that says this was not found in early manuscripts. And so I had to go on a deep dive because that's how my brain works. And I'm like, well, why did they tell this story? Why is it in here? And scholars, most scholars agree, which is why it actually is in the Bible, that it happened, that it was Jesus, that it really was um, part of his life here. But nobody actually knows who wrote it. Like, they don't even think that John wrote it because the language is wrong. Why'd they put it in John? I don't know. They don't think that this is the timeline where it happens, because if you read the Gospel of John, you get to this, and you're like, oh, that feels awkward and weird, like it shouldn't belong there, because it wasn't there. But they stuck it in for some reason. And so I go, okay, what are we needing to learn from this here, right? Why was this, this story that they found so important that we had to make sure that we found a spot to add it in later? So we're going to read it, see what we can learn. Again, it's most often referred to as the woman caught in adultery. I am pretty sure that it's mistitled and it should be called the men caught in hypocrisy. (laughs) Y'all know the story already. If you don't, you'll get the joke in a minute. Let's get there. We'll get there. All right, we're going to start in John 8, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And it, Again, this was in parentheses. The, the writer of this was like, hey, P.S., they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So we have this woman. We have the religious experts and leaders of the time, the people that were supposed to demonstrate right living and what it looks like. They grabbed this woman that they had been caught in the middle of adultery and they brought her to the crowd. And they were like, hey, this one, she was having a slumber party with somebody she wasn't supposed to be having a slumber party with. Parents, you're welcome. (laughs) What do you want us to do? Because Moses says we have to stone such women, so you tell us, what do you want us to do with her here? And at first, at first, it looks like we've got the religious leaders upholding the law, right? They're upholding the law. They're going to do what's right. They're going to instill consequence and make sure they're going to make example out of people, make sure nobody else backslides into this same sin because we need to show people what happens if you commit adultery. But here's the thing. Often when people take scripture, like one verse out of context, and they want to use it to justify their behavior, or they want to use it to keep themselves morally superior over somebody else, they're often misinterpreting it. They're often using it wrong. I know you've probably never experienced that, where somebody takes a Bible verse, and you're like, I don't actually think that's what it means. So, as is often the case, it's what's happening here. They Took these verses from Deuteronomy and Leviticus because the law of Moses did actually call for stoning. But it also said, it takes two to tango here, my guy. Okay, here's what it says Deuteronomy, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. Leviticus, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor perhaps, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Huh. So yes, this was a very serious thing. Adultery was serious. Adultery is serious. It is a serious offense. But there was no caveat that only such women deserved to be punished. So what happened here? What happened here? If the Pharisees are going to treat people's sin seriously, what about the man that they caught her in adultery with? I feel like there's only one of two options, right? Either they did actually walk into a slumber party taking place and they were like, whoa, you come with me. You guy, you can go. We're not gonna hold you accountable. Or the Pharisees like kind of saw something happening. They weren't really sure, but like, you know, you you think you know what happened and they are just bringing this woman into town without actually seeing something take place. I don't know. It doesn't say. All we can go off of what the scripture says, but in either of those cases, what we are seeing is um, hypocrisy. We are seeing people that are saying, sin is so important and we need consequence, but really kind of only for certain people in certain situations. That is not what we are supposed to do. So, They're operating out of their moral superiority. They're waiting on Jesus to give them a response. And instead, in verse 6, he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is the oddest behavior. Jesus, what are you doing? Can you imagine being in conversation with somebody and all of a sudden they're just like, I just got to get a piece of chalk here and just like start drawing a hopscotch or something. I don't know what. He just bends down, starts doodling, starts writing in the dirt. We don't know what he's writing. It never tells us which on one hand tells me that maybe what he's writing isn't actually important. It's not the point of the story. On the other hand, I love the mystery in Scripture because we get to kind of fill in and we can imagine, right? What do you think it was? Was he writing something just for her? Was he rewriting what the law of Moses actually said to correct how they had just tried to misuse it against her? As they were readying their stones, remember, they're, they're about to put her to death. As they're readying her stones, did they just, Does he start writing out like all of their unseen sins? All of their thoughts and desires and things that happen behind closed doors? We don't know. We don't know, but it must have hit some kind of nerve because at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Imagine you're the woman in this exchange. You have been publicly accused of something that you may or may not have done. We don't know. And you know what's coming. Because stoning was a common practice. It was a common punishment. So here you are, you're brought to the middle of town, to the middle of crowd. There are people everywhere. And you know what is coming for you. Stoning happened and it was meant to be a lengthy, gruesome, torturous process. So she had to have been standing there terrified of what was coming. Physically terrified. Knowing that she was about to face the um, worst moments of her life in this punishment. Instead, Jesus stands and he looks her in the eye and he sees her. He sees her as a person. He sees not, not what she's done but who she is. He sees the person that she's capable of being. He sees the potential that she has. He sees like Paul Maybe the person that she wishes she was and she can't figure out why she can't be that person. He sees her, he stands up and he looks her in the eye. And with what I can only imagine is full on gentleness, maybe a touch of sarcasm, he's like, Where'd they go? Where'd they all go? Because he knew, he knew. I don't know anyone that is without sin. So he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't condemn her. See, these are two opposite responses that I think we still see today when it comes to other people's sin and how we're supposed to handle or address other people's sin. The men saw her and they hated their sin and they said, she needs a consequence. She needs to be punished. So we are going to make sure we take care of it. But it was void of relationship. They just exposed her in the middle of town to shame and call her out. But Jesus saw her, not just what she did, but how she got there, how she got to that place. How her relationship with other people probably affected her actions and that it wasn't something she was doing in a vacuum. And he saw her sin and he saw the sin of the Pharisees. He saw the hidden sin of the Pharisees just as clearly as he saw hers. And he was like, hey, sin requires judgment, but from people who are sinless and that's none of y'all. Like, that's nobody that's here right now trying to put yourself on a level above her. So he stepped in and literally physically saved her life. See, Jesus addressed sin in the context of relationship, but I think he also shows us why hate the sin, love the sinner, why it might sound good and have good motivations doesn't actually work. And I think he changes it here. If we look at what he did and what he models for us, Maybe we're supposed to see the sin and cover the sinner. See the sin, cover the sinner. I said cover the sinner, not cover up the sin. Those are very different things. He does say to see sin. He calls her to change. That is a requirement. He says go and sin no more. In other translations, it actually says be free from a life of sin. He does call her to something else, but he also doesn't call her to perfection. I don't think that when he says, go and sin no more, he's like, literally never again in life are you going to do another bad wrong thing, because we know that that's not possible. We've already talked about how sin and the sinner are so connected, but I think what he's saying to her is, live in freedom, out from under the weight of that sin, live in the grace This feeling that you felt where you literally were standing here waiting for stones and rocks to crush your body, now knowing that that is gone and has been taken away, that freedom that you feel, that lightness, live in that grace. That's what I think he's calling us to. Live in that kind of freedom and that kind of grace. Grace is not an excuse for us to keep doing whatever we want to do. He does call her to change. He's like, live in that grace. Live a life that shows people that you have changed and that you can continue to change. See the sin, cover the sinner. So I think some of you understand this. Some of you understand this because you have been in relationship with people who have done things, that you could not imagine them ever doing. You have been in relationships with people who have have committed the sins that you thought are unimaginable. You're like, I don't even know how you got here. And you've had to wrestle through what to do with them in that situation. Do you still love them? Do we still love them? Sometimes loving people is not even a choice because of who they are in our lives or what position they hold in our lives. Loving them is like, well of course I love them but will you cover them? Can you help them move forward? Can you help them to get through it and get past it and continue to be the person that they were before that thing ever happened? Some of you get this because you are that person. You are that person. And you're like, I I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I did the thing that I said I would never do. But I'm here now and I just wish that someone would see me. I wish someone would see me for who I am instead of that mistake that I made. I wish someone would see how I got here. I wish someone would see me and cover me as a person so that my identity doesn't still have to be just this one worst mistake I've ever made. We have to see people and cover the sinner. See, and having our sin called out by someone is very different than having our sin be addressed in the context of a relationship. And that is important. It is important. There are people in my life that see me and that know me. And they know, they have permission to call out all of my ish at any given moment because they know me and I trust them. And I trust that they know genuinely who I am. And I'm gonna tell you, those conversations are rough. It does not feel like Jesus in that moment. (laughs) But it is. And that's why it's important that we can address our sin in the context of relationship. Because when you have those people in your life, you know they're not just trying to punish you. They're not just trying to shame you. They're not going to call you out on the internet as a way of saying, hey, I'm calling you out in love. There is a big difference addressing your sin in the context of a relationship with someone who knows you And calling out your sin in a way that is public or shaming and is not done in love. See, Jesus can be that person. Jesus wants to be that person for you. That's why scripture says in 1 Peter, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. When Peter said this, they were actually in the middle of legit persecution. Legit persecution. Not like, oh, I have to do these things and I don't want to, no. Thousands of people were dying because they were Christians. Thousands of people were dying, were being murdered gruesomely just because of their faith. And it was in the midst of all of this. Peter actually died a martyr in the middle of this persecution. It was in the middle of all of this that he was saying to them, love. In the midst of all of it, love, serve, represent Christ, regardless of what is being done by other people, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers all of it. Love is the reason that Jesus took all of our sins to the cross. Every sin that you've ever committed, the ones you're going to commit today, the ones you haven't even thought about yet, but are in your future. He took all of those to the cross to cover us in love. See the sin, cover the sinner. means we are choosing to be careful with what we say. We choose to be careful when we talk about other people. We don't bring prayer requests to small group because we just want to pray for people. We have to be careful that we're not just gossiping. The world doesn't need to know every single little detail of somebody else's story. Covering people with love says we are going to choose relationships over a side. We're going to choose to love people. That means we may have to hold back details of things that happened. In order to choose, again, relationship, we have to choose not to bring the sinner to the middle of the crowd, which doesn't really necessarily look like bringing them to the middle of town right now, but could look like talking about them on social media. It could look like talking about them in a variety of ways. We are are not exposing people's mistakes. We are covering them with love. We are choosing relationship over adding to a narrative that makes somebody's sins their identity. Maybe in your life, you need to remove your own moral superiority, come down from the ledge that you accidentally put yourself on, because you are valuing consequence over relationship, and maybe you become blind to your own sin. Maybe you need to start seeing other people's sin through the lens of your own, because Jesus's religion was never built on power structures, and we have to see people so we can be on the same page with compassion and empathy. Maybe you need to reconcile a relationship. Maybe there's somebody that you have accidentally hurt, and you need to cover someone, cover someone in your life that maybe you have only been seeing as their worst mistake and you need to choose to start covering them with love what is it for you what do you need to do it's not always easy but it is possible and it's what jesus calls us to last weekend uh, my daughter marley who just turned nine went to a slumber party and Marley has struggled with anxiety um, for the last couple of years. She's really gotten better. She's worked really hard, and she's gotten so much better. And we talk about, you know, the Holy Spirit is always with her and all of these things. But she went to a slumber party last weekend. It was the first one that wasn't um, family. It was the first, like, big girl slumber party with a friend, you know. And so before she went, I was like, all right, we're going to just talk. I'm going to give you just a little bit of extra reassurance. I want you to know if anything happens, you're going to be so good. If anything happens, you call me. You don't have to have a reason, I will come get you. Anything happens. Dropped her off, she was great. They ran around, they were eating pizza, they were watching movies, they were eating candy, filling up on sugar, all the awesome things, right? So I went to bed, I was like, she's so golden. Great. I woke up in the morning, had a voicemail. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. (laughs) Who called me at six o'clock in the morning? No one. But Marley called me at 11.30 at night. And I listen to the voicemail, and she's crying. And she's saying, Mom, I want you to come get me. I want you to come pick me up. And before the voicemail ends, I hear the friend's mom in the background going, well, what'd she say? She coming in to get you, and Marley's last words were, she didn't answer. <sighs> Woo, mom guilt is real, you guys, so real. So I woke up, I texted the mom right away at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was like, hey, is she okay? Is everything still good? I hope you're asleep. I hope she's asleep. I hope everything's fine. I can come get her right now if you want me to. Nothing. Didn't hear anything. Came to church all morning. I was like, something happened. Something happened. Something happened to my child. And I promised her I would be there, and I was not there. And something happened. And my mind went to all of the terrible, worst things, right? Didn't hear back from the mom. Peter went and picked her up. They came to church. She runs to me in the parking lot in tears. I was like, oh, sweet Jesus, something bad happened. She didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want to talk about it. I'm like, okay. Sat with me in the front row for service last week. Actually called me out when Pastor Naim was like, does anybody need a swear jar? Marley was like, she does. Listen. Don't do that to me. She was kidding. <laughs> She's kidding, obviously. But so we're in service, and at the end of service, we have something called a response time we're going to get to in just a couple minutes, and one of the things that you can do there is you can light a candle to represent that you're praying for someone. And Marley went over, and she lit a candle, and I was like, oh, who are you praying for? She's like, oh, I want to talk about it. I'll tell you later. I'm like, okay. All right. (laughs) Try praying for me. Okay. (laughs) So we got home later that night, I'm putting her to bed, and I was like, hey, can we talk about the slumber party? What happened? I want to know what happened. She was like, Mom. I know she didn't mean to, because she's my friend, but she said something, and it scared me. And out on the greenway, there's a bad man, and he's kidnapping kids, and he's taking them. And we were playing truth or dare, and they kept daring people to go outside and be out there where the bad man is, and I didn't like that, and it really scared me, and so I just wanted you to come and get me. And then we had to sleep downstairs, in new house, right? she's just not familiar with. She's like, I didn't have a nightlight, there were no lights on, and you know the rooms with the sliding glass doors? That's where she was. You know what was right on the other side of the sliding glass doors? The greenway in the woods where the bad man lives. She was like, I just wanted you to come pick me up because I knew he was right there, he was right out there and I was scared. So we talked all through that and I said, okay, had the good conversation. I was like, all right, let's move on. Let's stop talking about the slumber party, talking about church, talking about the candle that you lit on Sunday. She it's the same. It's like, what do you mean? Mom, I lit a candle for the bad man. I lit a candle for the bad man because I want God to help whatever sadness is in his heart so that he stops hurting people. (laughs) Right? That's why I tell stories about my kids, because they're way better people than me. They're, like, incredible. And I was like, man, Mar, like, your heart is amazing. You have the purest, most innocent, like, heart. I just see Jesus in you, and I see God in you in a way that I don't see in myself or most grown-ups, to be honest. I was like, that is amazing. Marley saw the bad man in a way that no one else has ever seen him, even though she never laid eyes on him. She never laid eyes on him, but she saw him more than anyone else. And then she covered him. She covered him, even though she was scared, even though she was hurt, even though she was terrified, even though she realized sin is real and it messes people up. She covered him with love and with prayer. If the nine-year-olds can do this, we can do this. And this is why it matters. What we say matters. The next generation is watching They are watching and they are deciding, what am I going to do with this church thing? I'm not sure. What about this Jesus guy? I don't know if he's actually worth it. They are watching us to see how we are going to treat each other. They are watching us to see if we are going to continue to call out and publicly shame people as Christians in love or if we are going to cover people with love in relationships. Let's not give them Catchphrase theology and platitudes that just sound nice but actually don't have any depth or weight to them. Let's give them hard wrestling conversations. Let's give them, I don't exactly know, but I can promise you that this relationship is worth it. Let's show them the way not to hate the sin and love the sinner but to see the sin and cover the sinner, to cover each other with love because love is the only thing that covers a multitude of sins. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for this time. God, I thank you for your message. God, for scripture, for the way that you speak through it even still. God, I thank you for Jesus. it sounds so silly to thank you for Jesus, but God, we do. Thank you for his life. God, thank you that we get to be part of the story that you're writing. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see other people the way that you see them. I pray that you would help us, God, to see our own sin, to see that we are all the same. God, and that we wouldn't use that to walk around and shame ourselves, but that we wouldn't use that to live in freedom and live in grace and love other people. God, help us to better represent you as we go forward. And God, for people that need someone to see them and cover them, Lord, I pray that right now today, God, your presence would show up in their lives in a way like never before. God, and I pray for a church community to come around them. God, whether it's a mosaic or another church, God, I just pray that you would put them in the midst of people who will see them and help them in the context of relationship because that is how you created us to be. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Mosaic Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For more audio and video content, visit us at mosaicchurch.tv.